Why You'll Never Be a Rapper, a memoir mixtape by Josh What's-His-Name Lefkowitz, forward by Fonte Coleman. Chapter 12. Uh, With my spirits reignited, I began to look at everything differently. If I was the best, then how could my self-esteem ever be low? Rap was what I was born to do, and these other guys were just pretending. I began making music again the way I knew how to. Work was put back into perspective and put back into its place as my job rather than my career. My heartburn finally subsided, and I began a new morning ritual of saying, Fuck this bullshit under my breath as I walked into the showroom each day. At night I started to pray a lot. I was never particularly religious but was raised observing all of the Jewish holidays and going to synagogue regularly. I asked for clarity and guidance in escaping the life I'd fallen into and for help getting out. In some ways I felt like I hadn't earned the right to ask God for anything, but I felt like I was wearing a life preserver, treading water in the middle of the ocean and my proverbial legs were growing tired. I recently read that rather than waiting for inspiration, you should begin creating and inspiration will come. Looking back on this period, I can attest to the idea that activity does breed activity. I started writing random raps again and within a few weeks, my determination came back. It paid off. I started to get calls to do shows at the Cat's Cradle in Chapel Hill. I opened for KRS-One and was approached after soundcheck by some of the members of his Temple of Hip Hop crew who asked if I was signed and began courting me to join their movement. But I had bigger aspirations and being the lackey of a rapper who had fallen from grace 10 years earlier wasn't exactly part of my plans. No disrespect to the teacher. I opened for the Executioners, a three-man DJ crew that was huge at the time. It was my first paid show, and though it was only $250, it was more than I'd ever earned from music in my life. I was given a 30-minute set, which was preceded by a 15-minute Little Brother performance. They were far more well-known than I was, and had just signed an independent record deal with ABB Records in California. I knew they were bigger, but the top billing fueled my fire. I love those guys, so mid-performance, I acknowledged my fandom and their record deal. I wanted them to know that I was proud. After the show, I was approached by Ninth Wonder, Little Brother's DJ and producer. I was friendlier with Fonte and Pooh, but Ninth and I had always been cordial. I never drank before shows because alcohol did a number on my memory and I never wanted to risk forgetting my lyrics. But post-performance, I needed to release and in this case, celebrate. Halfway into my third Heineken, Ninth extended out his hand to give me dap. Yo, what's his name? What up, Ninth? Yo, the show was dope, man, he said. Thanks, man. Y'all rocked as always. We exchanged a few more pleasantries before he got down to business. Yo, I want to play you some beats, man. You got some time to come to the whip, he said, wasting no time. Always down to hear new production, I followed Ninth out to his car. I had thrown back three beers in 15 minutes, which made me think that it was a good idea to grab a fourth before following him outside. We entered his beat-up Nissan, and he pulled out a black Case Logic book that was filled with beat CDs. He began playing beat after beat for me, and though this was early, similar snare on every beat ninth wonder, there were some that I liked. The only problem was that I was teetering on the border of full-on intoxication and could barely focus. I nodded along to the beats through my haze of barley and hops, barely able to say a word. Eventually, ninth broke the silence. Yo, you know, man, I've been doing beats for my crew, but I want to get some more, like, street cats on some of my joints. 
Street cats, I thought to myself, has he ever heard me rhyme before? But I wasn't one to incite conflict, so I just replied, yeah, no doubt. After listening to two or three CDs worth of beats, I turned to Ninth and was honest. Yo, I definitely hear some stuff I want to fuck with, but I'm a little drunk, I can't lie. Can we connect later so I can concentrate on them? Yeah, no doubt, Ninth said, sounding like an excited teenager. Take my number down and call me. You can come through the studio. We shook hands and went our separate ways. As the North Carolina humidity was starting to rev up in the summer of 2002, so was my name. One day, while on a lunch break from work, I got a call from a number I didn't know but answered anyway. The voice on the other end sounded familiar, but I couldn't place it. What would Josh do? Yo, Josh will rock you! Um, hello? I said, laughing. Yo, what up, man? A ski. I had no idea how or why he had my number, but I had seen him once or twice over the past few years. From his greeting, I could tell that he was familiar with ASAP. Yo, listen, I just want to call to see what you was up to. We putting together this little project, and I just wanted to holler at you and let you know about it. Oh, we're cool, I said, containing any traces of excitement that bubbled inside of me. Yo, so Sunday, I'm going to be in Durham with my partner Franz at the Washington Duke Hotel. You want to come by and play some shit? I told him I'd be there and locked his number in as instructed. That Sunday, I woke up bright and early, which was rare for me. I made sure I was in my best rapper costume and fitted cap and made my way to the Washington Duke Inn. But before I could even get there, I got a call from Ski. He told me that something had come up, but that his partner Franz would meet me there instead. He assured me that we'd circle back afterward. I was disappointed, but I continued my drive to the hotel. I didn't want to meet Franz. Who the fuck was Franz? His name didn't even sound cool. And when I met him, he looked even less cool and or qualified to talk to me about rap music than I had imagined. It had been a couple of years since I was an intern at Jive. In that time, Ski's popularity had grown to where he got his own imprint, Rock-A-Block, through Sony Records. The situation yielded an album from Yonkers NY-based group Sporty Thieves, which had some success. After he signed a handful of artists that never came out and put out rumors that he himself would be releasing an album, the imprint folded. And as legend had it, Ski walked away with enough money to buy a nice house in Winston-Salem and a Range Rover and build a top-of-the-line studio in his basement. He still got production requests from rappers from time to time and appeared to be financially stable. I met Franz in the lobby and we walked out to his rental car after he greeted me unenthusiastically. He was smarmy and acted like he was in the music industry even though technically he wasn't. He was short, in his early 30s, Jewy, and seemed like he came from money. He was dressed in khakis and wore a white button-down shirt tucked in with brown loafers. This guy is going to run a rap label? I thought to myself. This didn't feel right. From first glance, I got a bad feeling about Franz. He seemed scatterbrained and disinterested when he asked me for my CD. When he popped it into the CD player, I noticed a small glob of shaving cream behind his right ear. He was a mess. I don't think Franz even listened to rap. He seemed to be there just to be taken advantage of financially. We listened, or rather, I listened, to three or four of the songs on my demo as he attempted to make small talk and then said, Okay, cool man, I'll have Ski give you a call. I knew this would probably amount to nothing and that things would have been different if I had met with Ski. Eventually, I did get a call to come to Ski's studio to record something for his Carolina Blue mixtape. I was hoping that I'd get a classic Ski beat and could use it to show the labels that I was affiliated with a big name producer. But instead, what I got was something constructed from different sounds that he was experimenting with at the time. It was okay, but it sounded like just that, an experiment. 
I was happy to get the chance to record with Ski, but it didn't go down as I had hoped. The mixtape wound up being nothing more than a local thing and flamed out before it ever had a spark. That would be the last time I'd ever hear mention of me being a part of the group he was assembling. In the meantime, I was as active in the local scene as I ever was. Instead of just hanging out with no purpose, I spent a lot of time at Skaz's studio, which was always filled with rappers, DJs, and budding producers. We would do collaborative songs with one another and often pontificate about how we were going to take over the music game together. That house was a haven for talent, and had the right industry insider been exposed to what was going on there, we could have filled the label's entire roster. One day I was talking to Courtney C., who had another great idea to share. You know what you should do, he told me. You should have your brother send your stuff to some of the big managers in New York and tell them you're looking for management. If they agree to take you on as a client, you'll get signed for sure. If they walk you in the door of a major, it's a done deal. Once again, Courtney was on to something. I knew that I had the talent and the music to get me signed. I just didn't know anyone that could or would put my music in the right hands. My brother was a manager, but when I tried to utilize his connections, I wound up hitting a wall. He only knew people in the rock world, and to them, hip-hop was a foreign language. He was supportive, so I figured that if I gave him the strategy and guided his hand a bit, it could work. He'd be a manager reaching out to a manager saying, Hey, I manage multi-platinum rock group Primus. This guy's amazing, but I can't help him. Maybe you can. As if he was tipping the other guy off with some insider information. The whole plan was brilliant, and I started thinking about who we could target. First, we reached out to Paul Rosenberg, who's Eminem's manager. It seemed too obvious with the whole white rapper thing, but we went for it. We sent the music, but Paul simply said, not interested. That was okay. I knew it was a long shot. He was working with the great white whale, so why would he take on another one? The rationale didn't stop me from being frustrated, but I cut my losses and moved on. Just the fact that it was that easy to get my music in Paul Rosenberg's hand made me feel like I was onto something. Next was Eric Nix. He managed LL Cool J and was in the process of getting a position at a major label. I felt like it was a win-win situation and Courtney had the link to him. Dave sent the music and when he followed up, Eric said that he was quote, totally into it. It was time for me to drive. Now ask him if he'll take a meeting with me, I told Dave. Take a meeting? Why would he take a meeting? Dave said confused. Because that's how it works in the rap world. It's all about the meeting. That's insane. In my world, meetings almost never happen, he said. But Dave trusted my instinct, and sure enough, Eric was down to meet with me. He told my brother to call his assistant for scheduling, and Dave was blown away. I knew I had to get to New York, I just didn't know how or when. My last target was the man I was really shooting for, Chris Lighty. He was Eric Nick's old boss, and his company Violator was the largest management firm in all of urban music. His roster included everyone from Missy Elliott to 50 Cent, making Violator a force in the music game. I had a feeling that he digged my sound. He started in the music industry as a Tribe Called Quest's road manager, and all of his acts made good music. Dave thought it was lofty, but he followed my instructions to contact him. Everything went according to plan. Dave sent the music, and Chris was enthusiastic about what he had heard. With two powerful rap managers ready to meet with me, I just had to figure out how the hell I was going to get to New York City before the invitations expired. The following week, I was back at work at the car dealership. It was the end of the month, and Steve, my F&I partner, had called in sick because he was hungover. I had one day to close out close to 100 deals by myself, which we always left until the last minute. It was a daunting task for four people, let alone one, but we were both procrastinators. 
Each file had to be audited with everything signed in the correct order and accurate per the standards of each of the 20 or so banks that we used to finance car deals. Normally, we'd order food, lock ourselves in the office, and laugh to keep ourselves from crying at all the work piled up in front of us. The dealership and the company depended on Steve and me, and we couldn't screw it up or it would cost us our jobs. I couldn't believe that he had left me to complete all of this work by myself. I was overwhelmed, filled with anxiety, and all I could think about was how much I hated the job. But I went to work. As each file was finished, I brought it to the back where a team of women would audit my audit. But there were so many files. I'd bring them back in stacks of 10 or 15 to keep the whole assembly line working. By midday, I was only done with about a quarter of the files and there was no end in sight. As I powered through, one of the women from the back brought me a deal file, threw it on my desk and said, they didn't sign the odometer statement. I tried not to panic. I knew I would have to pretend like the customer was getting an oil change in the service department so I could get him to sign the document. This was slang for forgery, something we had to do occasionally in the interest of time. But when we did, we'd wait a couple of hours before returning the file. But I didn't have time to pretend. As soon as she threw that folder down on my desk with an attitude, I forged the customer's signature on the blank odometer statement with near-perfect technique and walked it right back to her. Two minutes hadn't even elapsed. I knew the cat was out of the bag, but I didn't give a shit. I didn't have time to call the customer to come back in and sign. I didn't have time to walk back to service to see if they just happened to be there and get them to sign it on the spot. Hell, I didn't even have time to think about the document. The only thing I had time to do was forge the shit out of their signature and go on about my day. I will never forget the look on the faces of those four women. Appalled, amazed, shocked, disgusted. But I couldn't care less. I walked straight back to my windowless, wood-paneled office and sat back down behind my stack of endless deal folders. Within seconds, the woman with whom I'd been having the vile folly with walked past my door holding the folder and into the office of Scott, my douchebag of a general manager. She sat in there for five minutes, then left empty-handed. Thirty seconds later, Scott was standing in the doorway of my office. He was intimidating, and it was hard not to feel a bit scared. I knew what he was there for, but I figured he'd give me a bullshit rap about how I shouldn't do that and we'd move on. After all, he was the one leading the meetings where we'd all joke about, quote, running into the customer in service. He was tough, but goofy, and it made him seem uneducated. When he spoke, he peered at you with his deep blue eyes. Uh, Josh, I need to speak with you, please. I got up from my chair slowly and walked to his office. When I got there, I plopped down into my seat, hoping this wouldn't take long. Josh. Leslie tells me she brought you an unsigned odometer statement and then magically it was signed within two minutes. You know anything about that? Scott sounded like he should be tending to a pig's trough. Nah, man, I said to him. Josh, I'm gonna ask you again. Do you know anything about this? At this point, I was starting to get annoyed. Scott knew the deal. He was a car guy. And before you can be a GM, you have to do time in F&I. Seeing the customer in service was a nationwide joke, and he was pretending like he hadn't all but instructed us to forge documents. I couldn't even pretend. Scott, are you serious right now, man? I said. Now, um, I, I do not know what you're talking about, Scott said, stuttering. You're serious right now. You're really going to look at me with a straight face and pretend like you don't know what goes on here, I said. Except Scott wasn't looking at me at all. His eye contact, for once, had completely subsided, and he was staring down at his desk like a little kid who was lying to his teacher about a dog eating his homework. 
Mm-hmm. No, uh-uh. I, see, I, I don't know what you mean there, sir, Scott said. I couldn't even pretend to care any more about any of this. I looked at Scott directly in his eyes. Now they were wide open and fixated on me, though his body language was nervous and fidgety. Okay, man, whatever, I said. Did you forge a document, Josh? Yeah, man. You did. Yes, Scott, I said sarcastically. Yes. Well, now, you know I'm gonna have to fire you, right? What? I said. Are you serious? I hadn't even considered that the conversation was going to go in this direction. Oh, yeah, I'm serious, Scott said, sounding like he was happy to have regained what little bit of power he had lost. I'm real serious. I sat there silently for a second with my stomach in a knot. Now I gave a shit. I gave a giant shit. In fact, I thought that maybe I was going to take a shit in my pants. Now I can fire you, or you can quit. It's up to you. I've always been a logical person. Music was my passion, and I believed that I was going to make it wholeheartedly. But for the same reason I went to college, I always stayed employed. Though I was a dreamer, I was a logical decision maker, and my knee-jerk reaction in a situation like this would be to figure out a way to apologize so I could keep my job. But my gut took over and I blurted out, okay then, I fucking quit. And without even thinking twice, I went to my office, grabbed an empty cardboard box and loaded it with a few plaques I had earned and walked out. I shook a few co-workers' hands on the way out and all of them appeared befuddled as I extended my free hand and simply said, alright man. I didn't know what to feel at that moment. In some ways, I was terrified of what I was going to do to earn money, and in other ways, I knew I was free. The next day, I woke up from a phone call from Melvin asking me if I wanted to ride with him to New York to re-record a song that he had produced for the Paid in Full movie soundtrack. The movie was a passion project of Damon Dash, and the soundtrack was set to be released on Rockefeller Records. I knew he probably expected me to say that I had to work and that I couldn't go, but I replied with an emphatic, hell yeah, I want to go. I explained that I had lost my job and Mel couldn't believe it, but he knew I hated it and told me good before laughing it off. I had to contact Dave and instruct him to call Eric Nix and Chris Lighty. It was super short notice, but I felt like maybe this was my chance to meet with them. He didn't hesitate. He got right on the phone and tried to make the meetings happen, but scheduling was an issue. They said we could figure it out, but neglected to cement an actual appointment. I couldn't think about the details, I just had to trust that the universe would align and that I would get my chance to be in front of them, but more importantly, I had to pack. I filled my bag with the rappiest of wrapper clothes and cleaned my Timberlands with a suede nubuck eraser and brush. I packed a backpack full of promo kits that included my demo CD, my 8x10 picture and my bio and made sure that nothing was creased or in bad condition. And that night, Melvin picked me up at my apartment so that we could drive through the night and avoid traffic. We arrived in Manhattan at about 8 a.m. the next morning. The label had gotten Melvin a room at the Metropolitan Hotel on Lexington and 51st Street, and after taking a power nap, we headed to the studio in Midtown. For the first day and a half, I sat there silently while Melvin and Rick Vocals recorded. Unlike our sessions, this one was taking a while. Rick was nervous and was having trouble, and before auto-tune usage was what it is now, people actually had to try and sing well when they recorded. Rick was cracking under pressure. I couldn't blame him. The room was filled with Dame Dash's Harlem thug friends who used the recording session to order expensive food and name brand marijuana. Rick wasn't in this situation because he had a treasure trove of hits. This opportunity had come about because his song Ghost made Dame Dash think about his deceased girlfriend and former R&B star Aaliyah. One of Dame's drug dealer friends had set up shop in Durham. 
and like many dope boys, he thought he could escape the drug game by getting into music. He played the song for Dame, and the next thing we all knew, Rick was wearing a small Rockefeller chain. I was happy for him and felt bad that the session was going so poorly. Finally, on day two, one of the thugs, probably considering that maybe I was a cop, began a conversation with me. Yo, fan, what you do? I rhyme. Melda's on my beats. His eyes lit up. Though Rick wasn't exactly holding up his end of the bargain, Melvin was becoming a fan favorite with all the hangers on. During recording breaks, Mel would pull up some of his beats and start EQing them on the giant console for fun. I didn't blame him at all. He too was trying to get exposure. Oh word, Mel does your beats? I know you got some shit then, the thug said. Yo, let me hear something. I walked with him and some of his cronies to the next room to play him my CD. And just as I had hoped, they went nuts. I wasn't necessarily surprised. I mean, I knew I had good music. But somewhere deep inside, I lived with this trepidation that maybe my music was only good in North Carolina. This was NYC, the mecca of hip-hop. But the reaction that I got let me know that I was as good as I thought. They told me that they were going to get my music to Dame, that introduced me to another Rockefeller guy named Big Face Gary, who politely took my promo kit. Monday was the third and final day of the recording session. I called Dave from the studio, and sure enough, he had an update. So Nix wants to meet with you for sure, but he had to run out of town. Whitey said he could meet with you Wednesday. Shit, Wednesday? I said. We leave tomorrow. I don't know what to do. But I went with my gut. Set it up, and I'll call you back when I figure this out. I went to Melvin, who was on a break, and explained the situation. He told me that he needed to get back home and that the hotel room was only good for one more night. But the rental car was his until Thursday, so if I wanted to, I could have it. That meant I'd go to bed, wake up, drive home, drop him off, go to sleep, then drive back to New York the next day. I'd need a place to stay and a co-pilot. I was anxious, but equally determined. And the more I thought about it, the more I knew it was a once-in-a-lifetime situation. I had to make it happen. So I did. So I did.